Open up your Bibles now to Zechariah 3, towards the end of the Old Testament, the prophet Zechariah. If your Bible is anything like the one I have here in the pulpit, you find that on page 940. The text this morning will be from Revelation, but this passage we'll um, spend a significant amount of time with in connection with Revelation 12. So Zechariah 3, verse 1, this is God's word. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. Then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. Listen, O high priest Joshua, and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant, the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua, There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. In that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. And before we turn to our text, let's sing once more hymn 35, If God is on our side. Do we stand for this song? Can we stand for this song? Hymn 35. You to turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation 12, the last book of the Bible, chapter 12. On Christmas Day at Surrey Covenant, we looked at verses 1 through 6. It's a bit of a different take on the Nativity story. And on New Year's Day, we looked at verses 7 through 17, and I thought we're still in January. It's very fitting to um, speak with you, bring God's Word to you this morning on the second half of this chapter. So Revelation 12, will begin at verse 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Then I, John, heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God, and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, 
They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with a torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That ends our reading, God's holy word. Well, this chapter, brothers and sisters, focuses on the great cosmic battle between good and evil. This is a description of the climactic point, really, in world history. We see so many conflicts, uh, we experience so many conflicts, and yet the core conflict behind all the conflicts is here before us this morning. Really, it's the point on which all of history turns. There's a war going on, a war for power, for glory, for kingdom rule over all the universe. And those first six verses that we didn't read there, they show that the war is won through events that take place on earth, specifically the birth of Jesus and all that flows out of it, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. But now in verse 7 and following, we see the events of the war as it takes place in heaven. And now as we think of this war, there's, there's a sense in which the war is over, the great battle has been won, and, and you, you're hearing that from the reading. Total victory is assured. It's over. But there's also a sense in which the war is ongoing. This sure victory that we're speaking of this morning, it has not yet been totally, fully realized. And so this reality that, that we've just uh, discussed, this has been referred to as the already and the not yet of the kingdom. Maybe you're familiar with those terms. What are the implications of this for us as Christians and for you as a church as we move into 2023? How can you fulfill your calling as a Christian faithfully? Well, these are questions we'll answer as I proclaim the gospel to you this morning from this passage, Revelation 12, 7 through 17. First, let's look at how the war has already been won. God is the king. God has always been the king of the universe. But under the old covenant, uh, the covenant with Adam that is echoed then in the Mosaic covenant made at Mount Sinai, God's people stood accused of treason against the king. Who's the accuser? Satan. Satan is given many names, like a lot of figures in the, in the Bible. There are multiple names for Satan. And, and one of those names we have it here is the accuser of our brothers, verse 10. Satan has always been the accuser. He's only the accuser. He is the adversary, another name for him. It's actually what Satan means, adversary. And as such, he's always seeking to work against God and, and always seeking to work against all of God's creatures. And given that we as humans are at the peak of God's creative work, we are the special target of Satan's 
accusations. So you want to picture Satan, if you want to kind of, kind of humanize this, you picture him as a lawyer for the prosecution in a court of law. And, and he's hounding the judge constantly, and he's hounding the accused. How does he do this? Well, the book of Job gives us a picture of this, at least. We see at the beginning of the book of Job that Satan has access to heaven. That might surprise us, but, but he's a spiritual being, and like, like the angels, he, he's able to present himself before the Lord. We see this in Job 1. And in that instance, Satan accuses Job of something. He says, Job, he says to the Lord, Job does not follow you. He does not worship you because of your inherent worth but he, he only worships you because of what he can get out of it. So it's an accusation against Job. It's also an accusation against God, really. And at the end of that book, we see that Satan is disproved. Job is vindicated. God is glorified. And despite all of that, Job is still a sinner. And that's really at the core of the accusation. The core of the accusation that Satan always brings is, is that humanity has been sinfully treasonous before the Most High King, before the Lord. And that sin has stained us so that we cannot rightly be in His presence and under His blessing. That's the accusation. Is it true? Well, Satan is crafty. Satan is the instigator of the rebellion after all. This is why we hate him. He is the deceiver of the whole world. He is a liar and the father of lies. But he's not entirely wrong. Israel had indeed sinned. Blood was on their hands. And yes, it's true, as, we, as if we're familiar with some of the first few books of the Bible, we see all of the sacrifices that Israel presented before the Lord. It's true that priests did that, and, and God accepted those sacrifices if they were offered in a spirit of repentance and trust in His promises. And so they were good as far as they go. But as the book of Hebrews tells us so clearly, these sacrifices were insufficient to truly remove the sins of the people. All the blood of bulls and goats could not do that, says Hebrews. No, they were only signs of a reality that had yet to take place. And so that brings us to Zechariah 3, where we have another picture of Satan. We have three figures in Zechariah 3. We have a high priest named Joshua. We have the angel of the Lord, and we have Satan. And we're told here that there's this high priest, Joshua, standing before the angel of the Lord, and he's dressed in dirty clothes, filthy garments. And Satan's there, and Satan calls him out for it, accusing him before the angel of the Lord, who is really a stand-in for the Lord himself. This is a picture of Israel's sin, but, but it's not just a picture of Israel, brothers and sisters. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That by nature we are all children of wrath because we follow the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. So we're talking about you and me too, right? Not just Israel. This is our problem as well. On our own, by nature, we stand accused. We're, we're like a priest brought before a king with filthy clothes. It's inappropriate. It's unacceptable. It's condemnable. So here's the accusation. Can there be a satisfactory response to this accusation? Will the accuser be silenced? 
Zechariah 3 tells us yes. Satan accuses the high priest, Joshua, really again accusing all of God's people. And the angel of the Lord, what does he do? He rebukes Satan. He defends Joshua. Now, who is this angel of the Lord? Well, we could look at the letter of Jude, and, and Jude tells us this is Michael. Michael is the archangel who contends with the devil. And Daniel also tells us a little bit more about Michael, that he is the spiritual prince and guardian of God's people. So whatever we don't know about the angelic realm, and there's a lot we don't know, Michael seems to have some status there within the angels. And Michael speaks on behalf of the Lord God. And he says, though his garments are filthy, that's undeniable, that's, that, that's there for all to see. Though that's true, though he is indeed a burning stick, the Lord will snatch him from the fire. In other words, the Lord will protect him and the Lord will save him. The Lord will remove his filthy clothes and, and replace them with clean ones, with rich garments. And this, Zechariah says, is a picture of what the Lord will do for Israel. He will remove the sin of this land in a single day. What a word that is, verse 9 of Zechariah 3. And in that day, each one will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree. Woohoo! Does that excite you? The thought of being able to sit under your vine and fig tree? Maybe not that much, but, but if you were an Israelite, that's a picture of absolute bliss. That's a picture of life perfectly lived. To have a vine and a fig tree, total prosperity. And then to have each one inviting their neighbor to sit under that with them, well, that's a picture of total harmony. Total prosperity, total peace, total harmony. How is this going to come about? Well, the Lord says, it will be brought about, verse 8 of Zechariah 3, by my servant, the branch. The branch, that's an important name in the prophetic writings in, in Scripture. The righteous one who will come forth from the stump of Jesse. King David's royal son. The long-awaited Messiah who we know is Christ Jesus himself. In the fullness of time, he was born to be that Messiah. And so now back to Revelation 12. And in Revelation 12, we see Jesus' birth at the beginning and one theologian says, Jesus' birth excites more than wonder. It excites evil. Why does he say that? It excites, it stirs up evil, particularly the evil one, because Jesus' birth is the arrival of the good one. And so in other words, the war is escalating as Jesus is born. And then our text, verse 7 and following, describes what's going on in heaven throughout the life of Jesus. Throughout the life of Jesus, we have Michael and his angels fighting against Satan and his angels. And verse 8 tells us the good news that Satan is defeated. He was not strong enough. And they lost their place in heaven. Through Jesus' excellent work, they were defeated. Right? Through Jesus' work which culminated on the cross, God forgave all of our sins, cleansing us from all our iniquities, canceling any charge that stood against us. It was all taken away. It was all nailed to that cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, Colossians 2 says, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That is just a way of saying Jesus is completely victorious. And to that we say, of course He is. 
Of course he is, because for all the power that Satan gained through our fall, for all his craftiness, his deception, his accusation, Satan is no match for the Messiah. Notice, as we go through this text, how he can't even fight God directly. But Michael is his equivalent, right? It's Michael and his angels versus Satan and his angels. And for all his craftiness, for all the tactics, all the plotting and scheming that Satan has going for him, he didn't realize that Jesus would conquer him through his humility and suffering. And how could he? He could never have realized this since he doesn't share any of the character and and the virtues of Jesus that would allow him to see that this is the way to victory. That the Lion of Judah would become willingly the Lamb of God so that he might take away the sins of the world. Staining his pure white fleece with his own blood so that we could exchange our blood-stained robes with the white robes of his righteousness. And so the great dragon... That's what he's called. He's not so great after all. He was thrown down. The NIV uses the words hurled down. And you notice the repetition of these words. Verse 9, the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And verse 10, at the end of that verse, he has been hurled down. And verse 12, the devil has gone down to you. Same concept. And then again, verse 13, when the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth. It's almost like John is enjoying this description, isn't it? As he repeats these words so often. Well, he should enjoy it. Because this changes everything. There is no longer, after Christ's conquering work, any place for Satan in heaven. No longer can he come before the throne of God and accuse us because Jesus stands for us in heaven as our advocate so again think back to that picture of a courtroom if Satan is like a prosecuting lawyer hounding the judge hounding the accused then Jesus is the great defense lawyer who eloquently and effectively pleads our cause before the great judge of all the earth so everything has changed in Jesus And it has changed now. Notice that word if your Bibles are open. Verse 10. Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ. Already now. And that's such good news, beloved. Jesus is the conquering hero. Not will be, but is. The Lamb who was slain has already ransomed a people for God from out of every people group of the earth. And, and He has already made us a kingdom and priest to our God. It's Revelation 5. Think back to Jesus when He started His ministry. He's in Nazareth. He goes to the synagogue. As is the custom, somebody teaches uh, from the reading of the day. And, and, and He opens this, the scroll to Isaiah and this description of the good news of God's favor, and he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And then he speaks with his disciples a little while later after sending them out, and they come back to him, and they're thrilled that they were able to cast out demons in his name. And he says to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have all authority. And you know he echoes that in the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. But, but he says to his disciples at that, that time, he says, rejoice most of all in this, that your names are written in heaven. 
And so this is the victory that Jesus has already won for us. Our names are on the rolls of heaven. In other words, we belong there. We have a place there. We have a place where Satan does not. Right? The same work of Jesus ensured that not only that Satan would be thrown down from heaven, but that we would be caught up to heaven. It's glorious. But for all that has already been accomplished, beloved, there's more yet to come. And that's where we see the rest of the chapter go. Verse 13 through 17. Satan is not yet utterly destroyed. That time is coming. And, and if we flip over to Revelation 20, you don't have to do that right now, but verse 10 there describes it. Where Satan is thrown down not only from heaven, but, but also thrown down from the earth into the burning lake of fire and eternal torment. That's still coming but not yet. So, so what's he doing now while he's pursuing us? Satan is still on the prowl. He's still wanting to corrupt and destroy like the thief he is. What's the difference? Well, a couple things. First of all, he is absolutely ticked. He is majorly frustrated. He's furious. Look at verse 17. The dragon was enraged at the woman, that's the church, and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. He is upset with us, to say the least. All this talk of victory, conquering, glory, does that confuse you sometimes? Are sometimes you feeling like, I'm actually not very victorious? I look at all that's going on in my life and there's a lot of struggle, there's a lot of bad, there's a lot of grief. You feel that way? We all feel this to one degree or another in life. And realize that, that you are not fully experiencing the victory because the devil hasn't fully experienced defeat. He is defeated. So we've been talking about this whole time. He has been thrown down. He has been bound up and disarmed. Christ is the conqueror. But the devil's still out there. He's still making war against the woman, against you and me. Here's another difference. His goals have shrunk. His desperation's increased. No longer is the devil trying to stop Jesus from accomplishing our salvation. It's too late. Now all the devil can do is disrupt and, and harass and try to lead astray as many of Jesus' followers as possible. And it's true, due to his original success with our first parents, Adam and Eve, we're no longer in some beautiful garden paradise. But we're in the wilderness as we journey to the heavenly city. But remember this key thing about the wilderness. Look at verse 6 with me. Verse 6. Verse 6 is a brief description of what is more detailed in verses 13 through 17. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. So this is what we need to remember. Yes, the wilderness is a tough place, but it is a place prepared by God for her. That is for us. A place where we will be nourished by Him. And a place where we will be for only 1,260 days. As we live in the wilderness, as we live in the place of the already and the not yet of the kingdom, still awaiting the return of our great King, Jesus, God makes two wonderful promises to us. 
First, the time is short. You know that in verse 12, he says that the devil's time is short. The devil knows this, and it creates a sense of urgency and desperation for him. But we should know this too, and it should create a sense of hope and confidence for us. We are in the wilderness, verse 14 says, for a time, times, and half a time. That's the same as 1,260 days, three and a half years. 42 months of 30 days is 1,260. That's how the month was reckoned in that numbering. A time, times, and half a time, one year, two years, and half a year. Three and a half years. The point is, a limited time. Only half a week as we are en route to the eternal Sabbath. So the first thing, the time is short. And the second promise is, I will nourish you. God says to us, I will nourish you. Beloved, and we can count on that promise. We can count on it with 100% trust that God will protect us and that he will care for us. Look at verse 14 in the beautiful picture we're given there. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of. This is how God has saved his people in the Old Covenant. Exodus 19, verse 4, God says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and listen how I bore you on eagles' wings. They're the same picture. And brought you to myself. So here again with his new covenant people, God affirms this. What is he affirming exactly? What is his message? He's saying, I have always been the protector of my people, and I always will be. And the devil will try to sweep us away with a flood of attacks from the world and from our own flesh. But God is greater. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world, writes John somewhere else. The same Christ who who was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to resist Satan's attacks is in you by that same Spirit so that you can resist the attacks of the devil in the wilderness. And so we have these two great promises before us in this passage. And really these are the same two promises that form the basic message of the whole book of Revelation, a book that can be challenging to us in some ways, but really has a simple message. Two promises. First, Christ has conquered. Second, Christ is coming. That's it. And so then the call that this book of Revelation gives to us and the call for us as Christians in 2023 is to hold fast. To hold fast. To hold fast, Scripture says, to the confession of our hope. To hold fast to Christ who is our sure and steady anchor. To live as those who are conquerors. Verse 11. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. You see, we are conquerors no matter what happens to us. The gates of hell cannot prevail against us, even if our earthly lives are to end in death, which, barring his return, is the case. Because God in Christ has reconciled us to him. And so death in this life means entrance to eternal life, to be in the presence of his glory and his blessing. We cannot lose. So as we wrap this up, brothers and sisters, 
Both verse 11 and verse 17 mention the word testimony, our testimony. So if you're still wondering, what does it look like to live out our Christian calling, to, to hold fast as those who are conquerors in Christ? Well, living as conquerors right now, this week, looks like faithfully testifying to the truth of God in Jesus. Faithfully testifying to the truth of God in Jesus. And that this involves two things, both speaking and doing. Verse 11 speaks of the word of our testimony, speaking. But also verse 17 speaks of those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So there's both speaking and doing. This is a description of a Christian. So what it looks like to be a Christian. So what does this mean for you as a church in 2023? How can you be a faithful witness here in Surrey as Maranatha Canadian Reformed Church? How can you be a brightly lit lamp in the darkness? Well, I encourage you to think of your vision as a church, which I grabbed off of your church website this week. We exist to know Jesus and make Jesus known. Our mission is to glorify God through gospel-centered worship, intentional discipleship, and the promotion of the gospel both locally and abroad. That's good. Gospel-centered worship. In other words, Christ-centered worship. See, Christ is the message. Christ is the point of all of this. So to hold fast is to hold fast to Jesus. And so talk a lot about Jesus this year. Talk about Jesus more than anything else. Focus less on yourself, more on Him. Gospel-centered worship. And then intentional discipleship, you mentioned as well. We are, we are not just believers in Jesus, but we are also followers of Jesus. Disciples, in other words. And that's because of the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes the work of Christ done for us, and He applies it to us, causing Him to dwell in us. And so the Spirit is the oil that flows through us, fueling our lamps so that we can burn brightly. The Spirit is the one who equips us to live as lights in this world, witnessing to the one who is the light of the world. And so, practically, in line with this, this year, pray intensely for the work of the Spirit in you. Pray that the Spirit would give you wisdom. Pray that the Spirit would give you boldness. Pray that the Spirit would guide your life. Beloved, amid faithless times, faithfully speak God's truth and be encouraged that He is at work. And should persecution come, remember that God gives the protection we need till our work is done. And know that one day we will rise again from the dead because the faithful witness has come, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Already and not yet. Today is the day of salvation. And soon He is coming to judge the living and the dead. Until that day, may we who have already been redeemed by Him be found as faithful. Amen. Amen. Let's sing uh, hymn 53, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Please stand if you're able.